0: In my mind, on my mind of the last two to three years,
1: uh, whether are we evaluating these companies uh, uh, rightly, or is MPEV giving the uh, right indicator of value addition, value addition uh, for life insurance companies on a yearly basis? So, so for, to discuss this topic, we have Mr. Sanjay uh, uh, Kavaskar, who is founder and director of Wisdom Two Guys. Prior to founding Wisdom Two Guys, he has he was the head of Milliman Life Insurance Consulting factors. Uh, He has been a consultant for over 17 years and uh, has an overall experience of more than 24 years. Uh, In fact, he has helped multiple life insurance companies to frame their embedded value disclosure. He has consulted 3 out of 4 listed uh, life insurance companies on EV disclosure. We believe that there is no better person than Senkit to answer our queries on embedded value accounting. Uh, Before we start a discussion, a small disclaimer that uh, this session is for educational purposes and there is uh, there will not be any discussion on any specific life insurance company during our discussion. Uh, it is the, uh, the comments that will be discussed will be more on a general basis on us to get better understanding about the industry. Uh, welcome Sir to our
2: conference.
1: Thank you Dave. To start with just to give the context to our audience. Uh, so, biggest, uh, so one of the things that we have been, uh, uh, we have been grappling with uh, by when we look at embedded value disclosure and when we look at the uh, statutory disclosure for life insurance companies, uh, the people, uh, I am sure a lot of, uh, most of the audience will be aware about it, that life insurance companies in India present their financial ac- accounts in two uh, two accounting methodologies. One is uh, statutory accounts, uh, or cash flow based accounts, and second is embedded value accounts. Uh, so if we look at the performance of uh, four listed uh, life insurance companies, uh, uh, over the last five years, from FY17 to FY22, uh, we can see that embedded value has grown at 18% CAGR. VNB has grown at 26% CAGR, uh, while net uh, and packs have not shown that much of growth in last five years. Uh, so, first question to uh, to Sanket. Mm-hmm. Hello, okay. can I can I request everybody you know? to keep your mic
3: mute, please? Thank you.
1: I still see some uh, some disturbances. Yeah, now, now it's better. So, Sankit, the uh, first question to you is uh, why there is so much disconnect between the embedded value counting and uh, statutory account counting? And uh, should, as an investor, we should be worried about that or not?
2: Right, okay. Um, I think that's an important question. Um, and um, I'm aware that many of the investors would have had this um, question in their mind. Um, if I go back a little bit uh, into the theory of uh, why embedded values came into being to begin with uh, is for a reason, and that reason was that statutory accounts uh, are meant for a specific purpose, and that purpose is to give the regulator uh, the comfort that uh, the companies have enough capital um, and will be able to pay the policy policyholders' benefits and you know whatever expenses um, it would incur in the future. Um, uh, on a prudent basis. Uh, The operative word here is prudent. So by design, statutory accounts are meant to be prudent. And therefore, if you continue to look at uh, the profitability that a statutory account shows, you may not necessarily get the true picture of the true underlying economic uh, value creation or a long-term profitability uh, uh, creation uh, 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 sort of uh, uh, ability of the company. And therefore, there was a need to come up with a, another set of uh, accounting uh, or value metrics. And that's how Embedded Value came into being. So what Embedded Value really does is that uh, it removes the um, prudence uh, from the accounting and it essentially discounts uh, the future profitability from your existing business uh, in today's value uh, and comes up with a number. So it, it it goes against all the accounting principles because you know accounting says that you are not supposed to take credit for any future profitability. Uh, you should take it uh, credit. Uh, you should take into account the future losses if they are expected to arise, but not the future profits. Whereas embedded valuation uh, goes in, in you know against this that it essentially places a value on future profitability that is expected to arise. Now, coming back to the specific question that you asked, uh, why is there a disconnect? Um, and whether in that context, embedded value is the right metric or not? Uh, uh, if you see, uh, you know, the, the, the reason why companies continue to have a depressed uh, profitability on their statutory accounts, uh, one of the big reasons is that companies have been writing new business uh, the new business has been growing at, you know, 10, 15, 20 percent, uh, in some cases even more than that. And therefore, uh, to the extent that the new business strain, which is the loss that companies incur in the first year that the new business is written, uh, because of the statutory prudent accounting, uh, methodology that they are expected to adopt, uh, would depress the profitability of their existing business, the business that they have already written in the past. And therefore, for a fast-growing company, um, or a company which has been growing at, you know, 10, 15, 20% per annum, um, and, uh, but have a high new business stream, uh, if you look at the profit after tax or, you know, the statutory profitability, it may not necessarily give you the true picture of the underlying profitability of the business that they have sold. And therefore, so long as companies continue to show that new business growth, uh, b growth, so long as uh, you haven't really reached a stable state, wherein, you know, like some of the European companies, they hardly grow their new business year on year, you know, maybe 1, 2, 3, 4, 5%, not 10, 15, 20%, um, that the new business train would continue to um, dominate the uh, profits after tax Uh, on their statutory basis and therefore you need to have another mechanism to look at the true underlying profitability or value creation metrics
3: and in that context I think the embedded value plays an important role.
0: Sure, but as an outside
1: investor how should we get confidence that uh, the embedded value or the b which has been disclosed will lead to uh, cash flows in future and these because ultimately, these two accounting policies two should converge uh, when we uh, when we reach an, uh, on a steady state basis. So, how today we can get the confidence that that the 10 years out, 8 years out, we will see sharp increase in cash flows generated uh, by these debt insurance companies.
2: Right, and indeed, that's a question that many of the investors have uh, been asking uh, to uh, you know companies in mature, more mature markets. The difficulty in asking that question in a country like India. Uh, again, is the fact that uh, our new business has been growing, is hopefully expected to grow in the future as well, for the foreseeable future. I mean, if you say that the new business volumes will continue to grow at 10, 12, percent per annum in the future, um, you will continue to have the issue that the new business strain will continue to dominate the uh, profitability, uh, the statutory profitability that is. And therefore, um, If your expectation is that the embedded value should start showing you cash profits uh, over the next 8-10 years, what we are really saying is that therefore, I want to separate out the impact of the new business strain, which is going to depress the future profitability, and only look at the uh, profitability of the business that I have already sold. Uh, Unfortunately, you don't have the ability to do it because the company is a growing concern. And as it continues to write future new business, that future new business will be part of the future info business. And therefore, when you look at the EV growth, uh, it will have two components. One is obviously the unwinding of the profitability of the existing business, but also the profitability that would get uh, 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 added to the EV out of the future new business it would create. So, although EV might grow, but you may not necessarily see the impact or the cash profitability impact uh, in your statutory returns. Uh, and therefore, so long as the value of new business or the new business continues to have its impact on the statutory profitability, uh, unfortunately, you will not be able to see that um, you know, transparently uh, in the cash profits or the statutory profitability. Now, Coming back to the comfort level, um, that does not necessarily mean that, you know, the EV numbers which are getting disclosed by these companies are problematic. Um, well, I mean, you may not necessarily see the cash profits coming in your statutory accounts, but that is not to say that the EV disclosed is incorrect or is not expected to grow as expected, etc., etc. I mean, EV may not grow as expected, that's a different issue. But uh, that is for other reasons, I and mean, those other reasons I'll come to in a moment. But not because uh, you know there's something fundamentally wrong in the EV as a as a tool, as a as a mechanism. Uh, it simply uh, does not show you the cash profits, or expected to show you cash profits in the future. Simply because uh, new business is going to dominate, um, and therefore uh, you will have to wait for some time before new business domination impact comes down. Uh, when you start seeing a uh, more direct uh, relation between EV growth and and statutory profitability. Uh, just one more point. I think um, in, in in markets where the companies have reached a stable state, um, given that the new business does not dominate uh, their EV accretion, uh, the investors have started asking questions about. Okay, uh, I understand your embedded value. I understand how it has grown, but can you please also show me the uh, profitability over the next 5 to 10 years, uh, which has gone in the computation of your EV. So, show me the projected cash flows uh, for the next 5 years, 10 years, etc., and I'll do the discounted matter, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because mm-hmm. everyone's risk discount rate is different. So, um, uh, so investors could ask that kind of question uh, uh, from the insurance companies, okay, I understand your EV, but please show me also the cash flows, uh, projected cash flows, that is, over the next uh, 5 to 10 years. Uh, but even if you get that, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to see that profitability coming in your statutory accounts. That does not necessarily mean that you will get the dividends out uh, over the next 5 to 10 years, uh, simply because if the companies continue to write new business and the new business stream continues to dominate the profitability, then your future profitability will continue to be depressed uh, and not necessarily what the EV projections are showing you.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Understood. So, what you are saying that the EV numbers that being these companies being disclosing uh, we should take that uh, EV uh, What what is the safeguard that investor has or what are the key points that we should uh, focus on by looking at those numbers and try to validate try to do uh, external validation or try to get more confidence that uh, these numbers are prudent and these numbers are, uh, are not let's say overestimated uh, to an right. extent.
2: Uh, I, I mean, the first thing that I have always been saying, uh, even when I was consulting, is that I think investors would be making a mistake if they take the um, disclosed embedded value or the disclosed V&Ds and assume that that is the number which will definitely, uh, uh, you know, uh, be realized in the future. <clears throat> uh, as you know, companies also disclose sensitivities uh of these EVs and the V&Ds. Uh, and although the post IPO disclosures of the sensitivities are not that many, but uh, during the IPO time, companies were expected to, de- or companies were required to disclose, uh, if I remember correctly, 25 uh, yeah. minimum sensitivities prescribed uh, by, by the regulations that we had. Uh, and they were there for a purpose. And the purpose was to um, alert the investors that uh, don't just go by the base number, satisfy yourself that uh, uh, based on the future likely uh, experience, how do these numbers change? Uh, I mean, for example, interest rate movements, right? Companies might be just disclosing 100 basis points, 200 basis points, interest rate movements. But it is very well possible that the interest rate might go even beyond that. Um, yeah. Companies may just be disclosing a 10% plus minus uh, lapse uh, rate sensitivity uh, or the surrender rate that they assume in the in the calculations, but it is very possible that the future uh, persistency or the lapse rate may be more than that. Uh, and in fact, in the IPO disclosure, that I remember there was also plus minus 50%, 50. Mm. Uh, and I mean the number 50 might look large, but if you think about it, all it means is that if the ultimate persistency or the ultimate lapse assumption that the companies would have assumed in their ED calculation is 10% per annum, that 10% per annum becomes 15% per annum. Percent. And it yeah. is very plausible that uh, hmm. the future access can go from 10% to 15%. And if you see the impact that that has on the EV, on the v it is it is significant. So the investors have to satisfy themselves. So uh, that it is not just the base EV number, but also how those base EV numbers change under different scenarios that they are comfortable with. And then value the businesses based on that basis. Uh, so that's that's the first thing that I, that that I would say. Uh, the second thing is that uh, uh, you know all the companies have been getting um, external consultants to uh, to uh, review their internal valuation. Uh, I have been doing those reviews myself uh, in the past, uh, and which is a good practice, which which has to continue. Uh, I think there has to be a pressure on companies to disclose more. Uh, because if you see the post-IPO disclosures, they are not of the same uh, same length, uh, same, uh, same quality uh, as the pre-IPO, uh, as the disclosures yeah. at the time of IPOs. And mm-hmm. therefore, I think the investors need to uh, push companies to start disclosing a lot more. For example, um, uh, you know, these sensitivities. I mean, if 10% is going to give you a certain number, and 50% might give you not just five times, it could give you six times uh, the sensitivity yeah. that the 10% uh, show. So investors would want to see that. Or the shape change, not just the level change, but also how the shape change uh, impacts the different uh, different uh, values. Um, uh, you know, uh, line of business level disclosures. Uh, you know, the VNDs that you see currently are all consolidated VNDs. But the underlying numbers for VNBs for different lines of businesses are very different. And in fact, also how the VNBs change into different scenarios could be different. In some lines of yeah. business, a positive interest rate movement would have a positive impact on the VNB. Hmm. Whereas in some lines of business, a positive interest rate movement has a negative impact on the VNB. And therefore, what you see is only a, a number which is a, a, which is a net of the two. Uh, and not really uh, you know individual numbers. So I think the investors might want to uh, push companies to get these uh, these kind of granular uh, disclosures. Uh, but but but, if you ask me, is there anything fundamentally wrong in what the companies are disclosing? Uh, I don't think uh, there is anything fundamentally wrong. Um, hmm. Is there a scope for further improvement in the disclosures? Absolutely. Uh, I think what is important for investors to uh, keep doing is pushing companies on disclosing more and educating themselves uh, in understanding the numbers. I mean, give you another example, right? Um, BNBs. How many investors know that there is a inconsistency in different companies' VnB disclosures to the extent uh, when the VnBs are cal- calculated as at. So, some companies show their VNBs calculated as at the valuation date, which is, let's say, 31st March 2022, the financial year end, where some companies show VNBs calculated as at the point of sale of the new business. Hmm. Now, what it means is that on an average, assuming that, let's say, the business is sold in in, during uh, the year, is, uh, you know, halfway during the year, uh, those companies showing the V&Bs as at the valuation date would be showing a slightly higher level of BNB because they would be accruing, let's say, half years of interest uh, hmm. on on the on the point of hmm. the BNB. Now, hmm. if you compare the and of record the two companies, they may not be comparing uh, you know like no. this, like. Hmm. So, I think hmm. investors have to educate themselves as well in uh, in um, in looking at these companies and the valuations.
1: <coughs> Understood. So you spoke about external validation. Uh, I think there is varying degree of uh, uh, external validation which goes uh, uh, into times the particular EV number. The extent of uh, in-depth analysis that, that was done during IPO time, I think there has been a quite a different change uh, post that. So can you speak about and give us more education that uh, uh, what should be the minimum level of uh, external validation that investors should seek uh, uh, on these EV numbers?
2: Sure. So, I have been, I have been uh, uh, arguing that uh, there has to be a standard of post-IPO disclosure as well. Uh, unfortunately, there isn't one. Uh, hmm. We have a standard of uh, how the IPO disclosures should look like uh, or how the EV should be calculated as at the time of IPO, uh, you know, the, 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 the listing disclosures. But unfortunately, there is no regulation, there is no standard, uh, actual standard that is, uh, for post-IPO disclosures. And I had been arguing that uh, given that we had the standards uh, specified for the purpose of IPO disclosure, we should have a uh, similar standard for post-IPO disclosures only to make sure that the companies, you know, adhere to a certain written-down uh, standard, and there is no inconsistency uh, between two different companies when you compare two different companies. Uh, that is not, not at all to say that any company is... is um, Is fudging the numbers, not at all. Mm. Uh, That is not to say that what they are doing is, quote-unquote, incorrect, uh, not Mm. at all. Uh, It only means that, uh, you know, two companies may not be directly comparable. That's all it means. Uh, And therefore, Mm. to that extent, I think it is important for there to be a standard. Unfortunately, we don't really have that standard as of now. Uh, However, uh, if I were an investor, what I would continue to push companies is more disclosure. Uh, as I said earlier, um, and validation. Uh, uh, I remember uh, one of the companies, uh, one of the years, did not really get uh, their EV externally reviewed. Uh, I don't think that's a good practice. Uh, I think uh, every company, which is actually, uh, you know, those companies which are listed, uh, in order to have credibility of the disclosed numbers, must get an external party to review their um, uh, embedded value. Uh, the extent of review ideally should be, uh, you know, identical. Um, uh, unfortunately, currently it is not. For example, a company might say that uh, you should come and review only the methodology that I adopt and the assumptions that I have adopted in the computation of E. Um, another company might say that you carry out the review to the same extent that you did for the purpose of IPU which means not just the methodology and assumptions in the computation of EV, but also uh, the analysis of movement of EV, the sensitivity analysis, uh, the model underlying these calculations, and as you know, companies have, you know, 50, 100, 150 products, and hmm. the underlying models uh, undergo changes every now and then. So... Would some of those changes impact the numbers inadvertently? Uh, There should be a check carried out, uh, uh, you know, preferably through an external consultant, that uh, uh, the numbers coming out coming out of the company's models are indeed reflecting the methodology and the assumptions uh, that uh, that are being adopted. So these are two different extremes, and companies might be adopting any uh, you know intermediate uh, standard now. It is probably uh, uh, too much to expect companies to do the same level of uh, uh, review that they carried out at the time of IPO because, you know, I, I, having been involved in three IPOs, I know how how significant that exercise is. But, uh, I mean, that for an investor, you should obviously be pushing companies to disclose more and getting more review uh, carried out. Uh, so that's what I would suggest uh, investors do uh, when it comes to uh, reviewing the uh, external uh, consultant's reports.
1: Yeah, yeah, and when, when these uh, companies report their financial numbers uh, in a certification from our external actually, so uh, in, in that certification, can we identify what set of, what, what is the level of uh, uh, validation which has gone through in that, uh, to, uh, by reading that to that, uh, that, 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 that which is being shared to the board?
2: Yes, hopefully it, it should. Um, and, and indeed, uh, the, the, the disclosures that companies have made a couple of pages in some cases. Uh, in one case, when I was involved a few years back, uh, it was a, a four, five-pager report, if I recall correctly. Um, it is still not the same as a 40, 50-page report that I had given at the time of IPO, but four, five-pager is better than a couple of pages. Uh, but reading those would give you an, a good enough understanding of the extent of review carried out uh, by, by the uh, external uh, uh, consultants. And I would recommend that don't just go by the opinion wording. Opinion wording is important, but also review what exactly has been carried out, uh, by the, by the reviewers. Even model review, for example. You know, there can be model review at model point level. You know, I pick up 5, 10, 15 policies of a given product and check that the policies are giving me the same, uh, PDFP or same EV or same this. As what the company's models are, uh, you know, showing. So that's one, one extent of model review. Another extent of model review is that if the company has 5 million policies, I carry out a, a review of all those 5 million policy calculations. Right? So that's, that's another extreme. Mm-hmm. Um so I think giving, reading the, the, the report will also give investor an understanding of the extent of review carried out. Whether it's just uh, uh, methodology assumptions, uh, if it is model review, whether it is only at model point level or at aggregate level, uh, whether the movement of embedded value from one year to the other uh, has been reviewed or not, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think that's something that uh, I would recommend investors do. Don't just go by the uh, the numbers which are disclosed.
1: Another point which has been uh, on top of my mind is that if you look at these companies, uh, all of them are reporting pretty sharp improvement in BNB margin. When they got listed in uh, BNB margin in the range of uh, 10 to 15, 70 percent, now they are touching almost 30 percent BNB margin. Uh, some of uh, that is being a, uh, being a function that the share of non-par guarantee products has also gone up. But I think uh, the reasonable portion is also a function of uh, the fact that uh, companies are now and longer duration products and uh, uh, if you look at the uh, the impact of discounting on longer duration products uh, uh, if, if the longer ten year uh, 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 longer tenure cash flows are discounted at 7% uh, versus if they are discounted at uh, 11% uh, there is a huge difference between the present value of those numbers. Uh, if you look at the 10 year cash flows, if they are discounted at 7 and 11% the differential is just 40 percent that uh, in a, uh, increasing discount rate is reducing the this uh, reducing the cash flows by almost 44 uh, percent. But uh, if we uh, increase the discount rate from 7 to 11 for a longer duration product uh, the impact is quite significant on the present value. Uh, so, uh, given that uh, in NPE we have used risk free rate as a discount rate uh, and if companies are uh, selling more longer duration products, does it lead to, does it mean that we are commensurately adding uh, uh, economic value uh, to the shareholders? Uh, for them the cost of equity may be higher, or does it, uh, uh, does it mean that we should take these v uh, and uh, which are being uh, increased because of tenure of the product with a pinch of salt? Right. So, again, I
2: would go back to what I said earlier, which is that um, when we look at the v and don't just look at the base numbers also look at how those numbers change under different sensitivities. And if you are indeed selling longer term products, let's say whole life plans, or a term to age ATE, uh, or you know, 20, 30 year non-participating savings type of plans, And if you are on, on hedge, let's say. Um, you will see the impact of uh, the BNBs changing quite a lot. Under a 100 basis point change, 200 basis point change in the future interest rate assumptions. Uh, once you see that, um, then it is for the investors to take a call as to whether they think, in their opinion, uh, the future interest rates are going to stay at the same level that the uh, the base numbers are calculated, or are they likely to change by 100 basis point, 200 basis point uh, in the future? And if so, what that impact? would be on the BNBs and the is disclosed. Uh, as far as the base numbers are concerned, if the future assumptions are borne out, as have gone in the calculation of the EV, um, the EV disclosed and the BNB disclosed is what it is. Uh, unfortunately, the methodology that goes in the competition of EV, which is the market-consistent empiric-value methodology, MCEV, by definition, is expected to lead to volatile results. Right? And that's the fundamental um, uh, sort of understanding that the investors have to have, that given the methodology, you should expect the EV and the BNB to be a lot more sensitive to future um, uh, assumptions changes or future uh, experience uh, changes. As compared to the previous methodology, which is a you know a traditional embedded value methodology as we used to call T-E-B, where the investors may, uh, where the companies may not necessarily change the assumptions that would go in the computation of the EV and the BNB. Uh but there was a reason as to why the in, you know insurance company insurance industry world over changed from uh, TEB to MCEV, which is to add in more transparency and to take away the subjectivity uh, from the insurance companies and give the power in the hands of the investors uh, only if they care to understand how these numbers are computed. Um, And therefore, uh, I would say that, um, yes, if the companies sell longer-term products, uh, the base BNB margins would look high. Uh, Does that mean that there is anything wrong in the base BNB margin computation? Not at all. Uh, but does that mean that the investors should take that as if? If I were the investors, I wouldn't. Because I would be worried about the future interest rates changing, about the future, uh, you know, other assumptions changing. And I would then go on to adjust those v depending on what my views for future interest rates would be.
3: Right? And
2: therefore, it would it would be a call each investor has to take, uh, and not necessarily the company, uh, which has given
1: you all the tools, which has given you all the disclosures for the investors to make the uh, informed decision. Sure, so, so, what you are saying that uh, uh, whatever EV that they are giving that, that is being discounted at the rate and for an investor the cost of equity maybe let's say eleven percent, twelve percent, thirteen percent. So they should adjust the EV and the NB numbers looking at the uh, EV sensitivity. So, for example, for
3: no, no, uh, one,
1: no, no, I and
2: no, 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 right. I didn't say that. I, 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 I think uh, 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 there's a misunderstanding. Uh, what you are saying is taking something from traditional embedded valuation methodology, which is a risk-free discount rate, and applying that to the disclosed sensitivities under MCED, which is not right. What I am saying is that if the methodology remains to be MCED. Hmm, and if the future interest rate changes by 100 basis point, 200 basis point, not against discount rate, very much. Because, you know, uh, uh, in theory, companies assuming future uh, earnings at, let's say, 8%, which is the expected best estimate interest rate on their assets, and the future risk getting discount, uh, future profitability getting discounted at a Shareholders required risk discount rate of 12, 13, 14%, whatever that number is. In Mm -hmm. theory, that is equivalent to companies assuming a 7% interest rate and 7% discounting rate. Right? These Mm -hmm. two numbers, in theory, are identical. In practice, they may not be because the 12, 13% is a made-up number you don't hmm. really know whether that 12, 13% appropriately reflects the underlying risks that companies have taken on their books and that's precisely the reason as to why the MCEV framework was designed to take away that subjectivity from the uh, hands of the insurance companies and from a from a, 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 a economic valuation perspective um you know, the reason why equity is giving 13% is because there is a risk attached to it, right? So, if you adjust all for that risk, eventually you will get back to the risk-free interest rate. And therefore, yes, in future you might still earn more uh, return, but you will not get credit for this immediately. You have to wait for it as it unwinds uh, 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 on as you actually realize that, and then you obviously took that as a profit. From a valuation perspective, I would say that it is still getting discounted at uh, the risk-free rate. So, you can't simply take the sensitivity that the companies have disclosed and adjust that for the 12%, 13% RDR that the investors might be thinking uh, as their cost of capital because that is not the correct way of adjusting. Uh, If you want to go back to the traditional embrace valuation methodology, what you should be telling companies is to disclose the uh, the embedded valuation numbers based on traditional embedded valuation methodology approach and then adjust the risk discount rate if you don't agree with the company's risk discount rate. But sure, you can't sure, really sure. adjust the uh, the interest rate uh, which is risk-free interest rate and only take your uh, expected uh, cost of capital as the risk discount rate and adjust it, adjust it on that basis. so. Sure, sure.
1: Uh, so, before, before I continue uh, to the participants, if they have any questions, please raise your virtual hand uh, and then we will we'll, uh, we'll take the questions. Alternatively, they can also uh, also uh, type the question in the chat box. Just before taking a, a question, uh, just a follow up on this. Uh, so, what you are saying is that the, the risk uh, uh, which uh, investors uh, perceive or the cost of equity that investors, let's say, expect to generate on on their investments that is already been reflected uh, in the uh, in the in the EV MCV calculations through various disclosures. So, so yes,
2: from from an economic valuation perspective, it is already reflected in the MVA M-M-M valuation calculation. You see, if you look at the composition of embedded M-M value, it has PVSP present value of future profits, it has CR and HR cost of residual non-hedgable risk. It has TV TV FOG, Time Value of Financial Options and Guarantees, and it has a a fictional cost of capital. Now, the PVSP, which is calculated by assuming that your assets own risk-free rate and the discounting of future profits also happen at risk-free rate, is essentially equivalent to investors assuming that my assets will not earn just risk-free rate they might also earn some uh, equity risk premium. They might also uh, uh, earn some, um, you know, credit risk premium. And therefore, I don't just earn 7% risk rate, I will earn 8%, 8.5%, 9%, whatever that number is. Hmm. Uh, and uh, given that I am taking those risks on my books, the investor should be rewarded for taking those risks. And therefore, I need to be discounting those future cash flows also at a higher rate. And that higher rate could be twelve percent, thirteen percent, whatever that number is. Yeah. So those two numbers are equivalent, and therefore the PVSP disclosed from an economic valuation perspective is equivalent to uh, you taking away that uh, uh, you know the, the difference in the risk discount rate and the and the assumed best estimate investment assumption. The other three haircuts uh the CRNHR, TVPAG, and fictional costs. Again, are for specific purposes. Uh, now uh, your risk discount rate in your traditional embedded valuation calculation is high for two reasons. One is that the investors take on economic risks by investing into uh, life insurance stock uh, or the life insurance companies have economic risks on their balance sheet and they also have non-economic risks on their balance sheet. You know, persistency, expenses, mortality, etc., etc. So, although by adopting the risk-free uh, 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 growth rate and the risk-free discount rate approach in the PVST calculation. To a certain extent, we have eliminated the economic subjectivity, economic risk subjectivity. Um, uh, we haven't yet removed the uh, uh, issue related to the assumptions themselves being subjective, right? The assessment the, the mm-hmm. assumptions or the mortality assumption, or the persistency assumption. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, there are assumptions for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and nobody can predict that. So, therefore, your mm-hmm. base assumptions can go wrong, and therefore, there is a risk attached to it. So, yeah. to compensate, to, to adjust for that risk is that CRNHR haircut uh, is for. Mm-hmm. Um, the tv for haircut is for the asymmetrical impact on the economic risk on the shareholder uh, payout, uh, which is... Uh, let's say in a in a um, unit link product with guarantees, which have guarantees. Uh, if this, the fund performs well, uh, you know the entire fund performance is passed on to the holders. All that the company <coughs> gets is the fund management charge. Mm-hmm. Whereas if the fund does not perform, if you know there's a negative return, mm-hmm. um, uh, to the extent that the companies have given some guarantees on the unit link business, uh, companies have to honour those guarantees, and therefore. The shareholders payout is not uh, symmetrical; it is asymmetrical between uh, upside and downside. So, to, to yeah. sort of capture that impact is the ev uh haircut, and the fictional cost uh, haircut is for, uh, you know, cost of uh, 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 management of the investment, you in expenses uh, of investment management and the taxation. So, uh, so, so the the MCEV mechanism. I uh, already adjust for the difference between the RDR and the be- best estimate uh, investment mm-hmm. return consumption being higher than the extreme interest
1: rate. So I have some follow up questions, but I, before that I will take uh, questions from audience. Okay. Anand, mm-hmm. uh, you can unmute yourself and ask a question.
0: So, uh, I, I think there are a lot of uh, different things you have spoken about, but hypothetically let us say if a person has all their investments in indian insurance companies uh, from a 3 to 5 year perspective what will be the risk that you think he should monitor he, he should monitor uh,
2: well, i mean 3 to 5 year period in a in a actual sense is too short by the way uh, actually always look at uh, you know 15, 20, 30 years time period, not 3 to 5 years period. And that's probably one of the disconnect that uh, the investing community has uh, with the actuaries and the, the whole MCEP mechanism to begin with. Uh, having said that, uh, if I were an investor with a 3 to 5 year uh, investment horizon, the first thing I would look at is uh, the kind of valuation that I have uh, uh, given uh, uh, or or I'm thinking of giving to the, to the asset, uh, which is way higher than the embedded value, you know, two times, three times, three and a half times now uh, of the embedded value. Uh, Now, that can't be purely embedded valuation unwinding. There is no way over the three to five years period your existing business is going to give you, um, you know, three times, four times the, the underlying computation. So, obviously, you have given the benefit of the company company's ability to write future new business at the kind of margin that the companies either have disclosed or you think that the company will continue to sustain and the kind of growth rate of future new business um, in, in the next three to five years. Uh, uh, so you got Can you hear me now? Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah.
2: Okay. Uh, so I was saying that there is no way over the next three to five years period that uh, even if you continue to write, uh, uh, you know, the uh, the the new business that you think that the companies would write, the kind of margins that the companies are disclosing uh, could justify three to five years, uh, three to five times. Uh, sorry, three to three and a half times kind of a uh, valuation. So I guess I guess the biggest risk that I see. Uh, from a three to five year horizon is company's ability to continue to write the kind of new business at the kind of margin that uh, you think or the companies think that they will be able to disclose, um, which is getting reflected in the valuation that you are uh, attributing to those companies. I think that is the biggest risk. Um, the the um, EV computation, the underlying sensitivities, the... Mortality, the mobility, the persistency expenses—those risks will be there anyway, right? They will be there not just today, not just tomorrow, not just two to five years, not just ten years. They will always be there. But over a longer term, they would even out, hopefully. Uh, what would what may not necessarily even out is your uh, attribution of a much higher em- uh, valuation to the company. Uh, over the entire valuation, which is primarily a function of the kind of future new business growth, the future profitability, and the vnb which has been baked into the calculation of the valuation uh, in the calculation of the valuation that uh, you would want to execute.
0: Got it. Second question, you said that companies, investors should ask companies to disclose more. Uh, whether they will do so or not is, uh, nobody knows. But there's already a lot of years. Which quarterly they give in the public disclosure section, there are like forty two or different statements. Out of those, which ones do you think are uh, specifically useful and should be looked at on a quarterly basis like this NL forty I, I think nL forty two is what I uh, think statements labels. So any particular statements you think are more relevant?
2: So I think, I think each of those has some specific purpose, right? Um, most of them are designed from a regulatory standpoint. I mean, the IRE has prescribed those, uh, those disclosures. So, uh, they are coming from the standpoint of statutory accounts, which are meant to be prudent uh, by definition. And therefore, if you want to look at from a solvency perspective or from the ability of the company to, uh, you, you know, meet the policyholder's payouts, or the ability of the company to uh, kind of uh, 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 you, you know uh, um, uh, uh, see the impact of their uh, quality of the business from a persistency perspective. I think those are quite informative. Um, however, my understanding of how investors look at this is that they are purely driven by value from a shareholder value uh, aspects, and therefore, uh, I guess the only relevant um, uh, sort of disclosure from your standpoint, uh, from the investor standpoint, is everything and anything related to the embedded value and the value of new business uh, disclosure, which could be two, three-pager, uh, which could be four, five-pager currently. Uh, all I'm saying is that I think there should be uh, always a continuous pressure on the companies to disclose more, um, uh, if not to the same extent as at the time of IPO, but certainly more. Uh, and I give example. For example, you don't really want to be told that my GMB margin is
3: 25%.
2: Please tell me how 25% is arrived uh, right, that for different uh, lines of businesses. Because for participating business, it could be much lower than 25%. Uh, for unit link business, it could be much lower than 25%. It could, it could even be in single digits. It could even be negative for non-participating savings business, it could be much higher than 25%, right? So, you would want to understand line of business level DNB uh, margin and not just one number, 25%. So, that's the kind of, uh, uh, I think, uh, uh, th- those are the kind of uh, issues that I think you should be monitoring. Thanks, Anand. come back you,
0: time Thanks. Uh,
1: thanks, Anand. Uh, can we go for the next question? But even you can unmute yourself.
4: Yeah, thanks. Uh, so I also have two questions. The first one being, uh, so, uh, should we be looking at net BNB margins or the gross BNB margins considering so you spoke about the new business chains which come into the business? So, for example, uh, um, uh, Bajaj Alliance, for example, reports, uh, its gross and net BNB margins and the difference I think is quite significant because of new business chains.
2: Yeah, sure. Well, um, as far as I'm concerned, there is only one vNB margin, which is net v margin, net of expenses, expense overheads. Um, now, a new company, I understand why they would want to disclose gross v margin, because the first policy that they sell, for example, if you attribute all the expenses to that policy, the the and of that policy could be, you know, grossly negative. So I can understand why the company would want to uh, show the gross BNB and the B, uh, the net BNB margins. Uh, but we are already a 20 year old industry. If companies haven't eliminated their expense overruns, have become efficient in the 20 years period, the investor should have more reasons to disregard gross BNB margins and only start focusing on net BNB margins. So, uh, as far as I am concerned, there is only one BNB margin which is net BNB margin. By the way, for IPO purposes, there is no such thing as gross and net. For IPO purposes, there is only one BND margin, which is the net BNB margin. And it is it is again designed for a specific reason. And the reason is that, you know, gross BND margin doesn't mean anything. Uh, you should really be looking at net BNB margin.
4: I mean, uh, like, uh, just to follow up here, so, like, as you mentioned, uh, we don't t- uh, talk about uh, statutory ban because of uh, the company growing fast and the cost- expense of new business being high. So, uh, don't you think, to, from that perspective, like, th- that's where I'm coming from when I ask you this question yeah, terms of uh, why we can't do so Sure, I understand that.
2: And, uh, uh, as I said, uh, the reason why I had said this is because you know, I was involved in the business planning stage of uh, most of these companies way back in year 2000, 2000, 2001. Um, and the original expense over an elimination period was supposed to be 5 years, 6 years, 7 years. 5, 6, 7 years became 8 to 10 years. 8 to 10 years became 10 to 12 years. 10 to 12 years became twelve to 15 years. 12 to 15 years became 16 to 18 years. Now it is 20 years. Now if you are again telling me that 20 years is going to be 25 years, uh, I would I would take that in a piece of thought, right? I mean, I have already given you 20 years to buckle up as an investor. And if you are still not able to buckle up, uh, why should I continue to give you the benefit of doubt? I understand the theory behind it. Uh, but if I were an investor, if I have to put my money, uh, I would not really continue to give the benefit of doubt uh, beyond the uh, beyond the period that I have already done, and therefore from that angle, uh, I would start looking. I'm talking about established companies, are not a company which is just started. Uh, for an established company right. which has been in existence for the last twenty years, uh, the only thing that I would start focusing on is make uh, expenditure and payment margins. All right, thanks. And
4: my second question is uh, like how to really. See, like, uh, life insurance is a business where the liability would probably arrive in a very long time, maybe 15-20 years down the 10-15-20 years down the line, and the premiums get paid today, which are affected possibly to an expected to be and margins and everything. So, like, how to really assess the underwriting quality? Because, like, neither of these factors would at least tell us, and the Tenure is so long for the liability to arise that, like in case of a bank, for example, four, five years, uh, you would say for over four, five years, you would be able to see the seasoning of a book, like maybe over a ten-year period. Uh, But in case of life insurance, how do you to understand or analyze the underwriting quality? Sure. I mean,
2: that's that's probably uh, uh, one of the reasons why you need a measure like embedded value or movement of embedded value from year to year. Uh, to see if the quality of uh, uh, business, not just underwriting, you know, the, the, the expenses, the consistency, the mortality experience, is in line with what the companies expected them to be at the beginning of the year. So, you know, apart from looking at the MBI value as one number, what is a lot more informative is how the MBI value has changed from last year to this year. Or, over the last 3, 4, 5 years, you know. Um, if you see a negative operating variance, you know, for example, the mortality variance has always been negative over the last 3, 4, 5 years. Or the persistency variance has always been negative. Now, unfortunately, again, this is one example where you don't really have the kind of granular disclosures that were there at the time of IPO. So, this could be another example of you pushing companies to disclose more uh, going forward. But the operating variance consists of each of uh, these persistency, expenses, mortality, uh, you know, uh, items. And if you see one or two or all of them consistently being negative, then that raises a question mark on the assumptions that have gone in the calculation of the opening embedded value, number one. And number two, the ability of the company to control their operating experience, uh, Ie underwriting, and therefore exists question marks about you know whether your underwriting standards are good or not, uh, whether you should be taking action to to control that. So I would say start monitoring the uh, movement of inventory value from year to year, um, and see the operating variance, and make sure that the operating variance is positive, small but positive. Uh, if it consistently becomes negative, by the way, it can become negative because at the end of the day. These are still based on assumptions, right? And nobody, neither company, nor the external consultant, nor, nor anybody else can predict what the future would look like. But if they're consistently uh, uh, negative, then that will certainly raise alarm bells, and you should start questioning the uh, the uh, the assumptions and the ability of the company to control their operating uh, experience. All right. That
4: would really helpful. Thank you.
0: Uh, Thank you. Can we have next question from Prashant? Prashant, you can unmute yourself. Uh, Prashant, you are not audible.
1: Prashant, you are not audible. So, uh, uh, Devata, can you unmute yourself? Uh, Can ask a question. Uh,
5: thank you, Nadeesh, and uh, thank you, Syntagy, for uh, for this session. This is extremely uh, valuable, I say. More than the V and b margins, I would say. This is very uh, concise and very succinctly said. So my question is this. Given the uh, different objectives of different stakeholders in the industry, I'm, I'll make it a little clear. The analyst looks at it from a very different perspective. The regulator looks at it from a completely different perspective. The customer's they don't really look at anything, and the companies have a very different prerogative altogether when they bring in all this. And now, given the complexities of different uh, V&B margins, especially given the varied lines of business, and that too over a long period of time, can we work on a scenario of uh, where, let's say, the actual society, you know, works with the regulator to bring in a sort of a mandatory standardized disclosure? Not just from... A perspective of uh, pandering to one segment of uh, you know either investor, company, or shareholder, but work towards making it slightly more uh, uniform in a in a manner that makes it easy for all the participants to go by a particular norm because uh, the, the 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 industry being very complex and uh, invariably people look at it from a background of what they have done in the past, whether it is a manufacturing industry or a banking industry or a lending industry or whatever. So I was just looking at it more from at a larger systemic level. Is there a possibility where this could be worked at, especially given that, you know, different products and different uh, lines of businesses have variable net business margins, and that makes it easier for people to, let's say, critically examine a few things from their own respective perspective. Maybe this should be worked at with a regulator, and uh, it's not something that will happen overnight, but I think if we work towards this, hopefully this information uh, asymmetry uh, that is widely prevalent in the sector can be uh, uh, targeted towards uh, some bit of a solution.
2: Uh, Absolutely. Uh, I think uh, you are 100% correct. Um, And indeed, uh, some of the Western countries, uh, Europe, for example, um, have moved to to a framework where shareholder reporting, uh, regulatory reporting um, is all converse. Um, uh, and essentially, uh, many of the European companies now don't even look at any value well because they can look at their statutory accounts uh, to get a realistic uh, view about the profitability from a shareholder perspective. Now, unfortunately, uh, we are in India, and we, we, we are a big elephant, and it takes quite a lot of time for us to move. Uh, but there has, al- there has always been an intent uh, from the regulator standpoint to move to a, a framework, what we call a risk-based capital, RDC framework, uh, which, as and when been adopted, will try to converge both the current uh, statutory reporting framework with the shareholder uh, reporting framework. And uh, then you will have one set of accounts which can be looked at from both the shareholder perspective as well as the regulator perspective, or from a policyholder perspective, for that matter. Uh, as to when it will happen, I mean, I can't really answer that question. I wish it had already happened. Um, I think four, five, six years back, I had given a proposal to the regulator uh, to work on that myself. Uh, you know, when I was part of uh, uh Unfortunately, it still hasn't seen the light of the day. So uh, I think we have to wait and see when it actually uh,
3: happens.
1: But I think you are right, 100% absolutely correct. Uh, thanks, Sivakar. So, now, there are two-three questions, I think, uh, from the participants. Can, can you ask those questions on their behalf? Yes, Nigesh, uh, just a second. Yeah. So, the first question that
3: we have is from uh, Mr. Chetan. Uh, Chetan Vesa, in terms of risk getting adequately factored, which op- uh, approach is more robust, CED or, or MCEV? So, if you ask me, N um, C E D
2: is a lot better, although a lot complex, uh, but a lot better from A, identifying the specific risks, B, putting a value for those risks, and therefore reflecting that in the valuation, and C, disclosing those components to the investors, so that invest, it becomes very transparent as how the valuation has been arrived at by the by the the companies, which is not really the case in a traditional Embry-Value kind of a framework. So, although uh, a lot more complex, unfortunately, for the investors to understand, but MCV uh is a way superior uh from a from a technical uh point of view, from uh objectivity point of view, from
0: disclosure point of view. Papa, are
1: there any, any more questions?
3: Yeah, the next is sorry, I was on mute, I didn't see. Uh next is from Anish. Would you please explain uh, the difference between TE- so I think that's the same one T E V and m t e v with a small example. You want to take this? I think yeah. you just kind of explain. Yeah, I think I,
2: I already touched upon that earlier. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the difference between T E V assumes uh, your your future investment return assumption at best estimate level. So if you have equities, let's say, it would assume that you know whatever the weighted average uh, interest rate that you expect to get on your assets maybe 8%, 9%, 10%, and then discount your future profits at uh, risk, uh, risk discount rate that the shareholders expect, which could be 12, 13, 14, 16%. It's essentially your cost of capital, whether that is cost of capital. Whereas MCEV, you bring both these interest rates down to a risk-free level. Um, so you assume that the assets will earn risk-free interest rate, and you also assume that the future uh, profits will be discounted at risk-free interest rate.
3: Thanks. Thanks. Uh, The other one is uh, Anirudh Shetty. Mr. Anirudh Shetty wants to know uh, the three parts to his question. Uh, First one is, when IFRS comes in, would accounting profits become more reflective of underlying economic profits? Then, if one adjusts for business trade, what would the true ROEs of this business look like?
2: Um, I must say I'm not that familiar with the IFRS uh, regime, but the IFRS, RBC, uh, MCev at, at a fundamental level, they are all based on market consistent framework. So therefore, the, the same question that uh, I think someone else asked earlier that uh, can there be one framework which can satisfy the uh, the uh, uh, differing uh, requirements of different stakeholders. Uh, yes, IFRS disclosures would help uh, you know these these kind of uh, uh, different uh, viewpoints from different stakeholders. Uh, you know the follow-on from there is what are the key risks
3: to current BND margins that you see? Yeah,
2: uh, well everything, right? Everything that the company has disclosed. The future interest rate may not be the same as uh, current. The future mortality may not be the same as what the companies have assumed. Persistency may not be the same. Expenses may not be the same. Um, uh, uh, I, I think uh, as an investor you have to get your head around the fact that there are too many variables that can be, that can impact on the value of a new business or embedded or value for that matter. And you have to be aware of those you have to keep monitoring those. You have to question the companies on those. You know, For example, companies might say that my BNP margins are, uh, you know, whatever, 25%. Uh, future interest rate changes, as I have disclosed, can change that 25% to say, 10%, right? Uh, but bear in mind that the BNP margin that I have disclosed is for the business that I have sold in the last one year. If in future the interest rate indeed go down and my margins are expected to go down, I will reprice my products, increase the premium rates and restore the profitability or the restore the VMG margins to the 25% level. Now in theory, it is perfectly possible. The question that investors should be asking is in practice whether it is possible or not. Because at the end of the day, there will always be a limit Up to which the insurance company can continue to pass on the, you know, the market environment onto the policyholder. At some stage the policyholders may say that, you know, I don't want to buy life insurance. And which will mean that you may have a product which has a DNV margin of 25% because you have repriced it, but you will not have a customer who will buy that product. Right? So although in theory it is possible for companies to restore those margins, the question should be asked is, whether in practice it is going to be possible. But all those
3: risks that, that apply to EV also apply to v Okay. Yeah, you know, in the interest of time, i want to take the last part of this question. Um, does the regulator have a strict oversight on what assumptions insurance are, insurers are working with, even long-term nature of product, plus inability to take Uh, Price hikes to correct, uh, to course correct in existing business.
2: So, the the second part of the question is easy to answer. Yes, the insurance company, uh, the regulator obviously monitored uh, the pricing levels and restricted the company's uh, ability to increase uh, or change the pricing um, beyond a certain level. For example, during COVID uh, time, uh, companies were barred from Revising their term insurance rates beyond a certain level by the IRDA. And that's one of the reasons why many companies scale back on the sale of uh, term insurance business, or the margins on term insurance business came down, despite their uh, cost, which is the reinsurance company's uh, you know, risk-free rates uh, going up, uh, uh, risk premium rates going up. So yes, the uh, IRDA monitors that. Um, uh, absolutely. That is their job. Uh, The first part of the question, whether um, the regulator monitors the assumptions, I presume the question was written in the context of embedded value or the value of new business. Uh, If so, the answer is no, because the regulator does not really look at, uh, the regulator's job is look at it from policyholder's perspective to ensure that the company remains solvent. Uh, Their job is not to look at it from shareholders' perspective. And therefore, as of now, right. at least, there are no regulations for post-IPO disclosures, as I said earlier. There are no regulations, there are no uh, uh, practice standards for actually, uh to to follow uh, for post-IPO disclosures. So if your question was in the context of embedded valuation and uh, b for post-IPO disclosures, then no, the regulator does not monitor any of that.
3: Uh, thanks. Uh, I hope uh, this question has been, um, uh, you know, answered. And uh, you know, I request everybody if there are any questions that are pending or you have more queries, I'm going to take the liberty on behalf of uh, Nitesh uh, to, you know, inform Mr. Sanket that we will be writing into you much more because I think there are a lot of people who have just enjoyed this session a lot. So we will write into you with the questions, and I hope you have take the time to answer a few of them. Uh, over to you, Nidesh. In the interest of time, we are going to close the question session from now and I would request Nidej to make some closing
1: remarks, please. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Upna. Thanks, uh, Santeed. Thanks to all the participants for joining uh, the, the conversation. Uh, there a lot of uh, insights from the conversation that uh, we had over the last one hour and uh, probably you can see how the industry was over the next three four years. Uh, whether these uh, uh, I still I think value continues to remain a bit of a black box from outside of our perspective and we have to take our deep of on the management team and on that, that series we are validating that but yeah we got some insights and uh, those should be very useful for, for our clients also thanks Anthea thank. yeah thank
2: you Nidesh, for having me and just, just one comment from me I think please 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 try to understand this uh, before getting into uh, investing in a life insurance company um, <laughs> don't get into this business
0: uh blindly. Uh, that's all I can say. Thank you. thank you, thank
2: you. Thank you very much. It was very helpful. Thank you.